Hey, good morning. So glad that you are with us. Um, we're in this series called uh, Remodel, and um, and really we've been looking at prayer, and we've been looking at, uh, last week we looked at repentance, and uh, this week we're looking at revival. And I would just say, uh, from the preparation for this week, I don't know how it's all going to come out uh, this morning, but I would say, like, buckle up. There's going to be a lot of information, and I don't think this is just mere information for us to intellectually assent to, but I think it's information that the Lord is going to use to transform us, hopefully today, but I think as we keep going for the next little while. So I'm going to pray um, what I've been praying over in the corner for a little while uh, now, and, and then we'll get going. Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Lord, send your Holy Spirit, send your Holy Spirit on us. Allow for us to get to taste and see the goodness of Jesus in a brand new way this morning. Send your Holy Spirit. We love you and we need you. Amen. Let me start with a quote. If no one else will, then I must say that I do love my Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. Now, this was from a little Welsh girl probably eight or nine years old in 1904. And it was these words that set off a revival that saw tons of people become followers of Jesus. And and I'll end my sermon this morning with that story. But we're gonna be speaking about revival. And maybe when you think about revival, you think about Credence Clearwater, or you think about tents that you get all sweaty in the southern United States in the middle of the summer. I don't know what you think about when you think about revival, but here's what revival is. Revival is a clear and unusual intrusion of God's presence and power on his people in desperation. It's a very clear and unusual intrusion of God's power and his presence. And so what happens is at the core of every revival, anything that's ever happened that you could be like, ah, that was a revival. At the core of it are hearts that are overflowing with love for Jesus, It's not really clear, slick, neat org charts. It's not really nice meetings with fog machines and all of the things that are going to emotionally cause people to get into some sort of spiritual trance and chant certain things so that we can call it a revival. No, no, no. It's hearts that are overflowing with Jesus. And when God finally brings a revival to a people or a place at a certain time, major shifts happen. At times, whole cultures get changed completely. And this is what happened in the 1730s with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, theologian, little town, Northampton, Massachusetts. I've driven through there many times, always wanted to stop, but can never convince myself that going to see a grave was enough. But one of these years, I'll have to do that. But Jonathan Edwards was a um, theological giant, He was probably the most influential theologian in uh, the United States, if not North America. And here's what he said during the Great Awakening in the 1730s about his town. This is a longer quote. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone, hear that, everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress and others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the soul's of their neighbors. There was clearly significant things that were taking place in that town of Northampton, but I want to point out one of the most unusual ones. 
And if this happens, I, I guarantee that you'll know that revival is breaking out. Kids, pay attention. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the children, meaning 12 and younger, the children in various parts of the town had religious meetings by themselves for prayer and sometimes joined with fasting, wherein many of them seemed to be greatly and properly affected and many converted. So here's what's taking place. Jonathan Edwards is saying, whole town is changing. You can read his accounts of the Great Awakening and what took place. But he's saying, one of the things I want to highlight is that the kids, instead of playing Fortnite, instead of running out to do what, what kids do, they were getting together and mom was making breakfast and they're like, oh, no, no, not today, mom. I'm fasting with Jimmy. And we're hoping and we're praying for the six-year-olds in that part of town that they're going to become followers of Jesus today. And I don't know when I'm going to stop fasting, mom, so don't plan on me for any meals. I mean, this is clearly unusual realities. And this is the type of stuff that happens when God says, I want to work. I want to intrude myself in these children's lives in this way. We figure out, we try and figure out, how do we just entertain them? How do we keep them still on a couch? And God is saying, I want to stir up their affections. Revival is not just for the adults. In fact, oftentimes, it starts with the young people. This is only a work that God can do. It's like an alien invasion in a sense. You look at kids and you're like, I, you look the same, but you're not the same at all. That's what revival does. Now, there was a businessman's revival, uh, which started in New York City in 1856. And really, the revival took place between 1857 and 1858, but trickled out into 1859 as well. In those four years, which started with some businessmen at lunchtime saying, you know what, we want to get together and pray that the Lord would break into our nation in a new way. Over those four years, 474,000 people were added to the church. Now, if you're like, you know, taking another bite of your baguette, like, hmm, I would, I would reverse time if I could and announce that again. 474,000 people added to the church in the United States in four years. The United States at that time was not this deep Christian nation, right? It's a pretty significant amount of people that became followers of Jesus. This can only be the work of God. Now, let me go to the first century. The first century, drew, they grew by thousands in the first few days. After Jesus had died, resurrected, and rose, he sent his uh, disciples out to preach and proclaim who he is, and thousands joined the church in just a few days. Let me read a few of those accounts. This is all preamble, by the way. Uh, this is great. We haven't really even gotten into it yet. Acts chapter 1. Uh, in, or Acts chapter 2, rather, in verses 37 to 41. It says, when they heard this, the gospel being preached, the good news of Jesus, says they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, well, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to the church. Let me just go to chapter 4, verse 4. It says, many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
5,000. And so we've grown to 5,000 in just a few days. And chapter 5, verse 14 said, Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes. Like they stopped counting. We're not even able to, to have enough stones to write on the numbers. Multitudes of both men and women were added to the church. And then if that weren't enough, it went global. The Lord didn't just let it stay in Jerusalem in a little silo. He said, I'm going to send you to the nation so that my glory is tasted in every corner of this planet. You see, and this work could only be attributed to God's spirit coming down with new and fresh power and presence. It wasn't the disciples. A few days ago, they were scared to death of being um, considered part of Jesus' posse because maybe they were going to die. Couldn't have been that. Couldn't have been that. It was only God's spirit coming in power and presence that caused this day of Pentecost to be unlike any other day of Pentecost before. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book on revival. He says, every revival is a repetition of Pentecost. And it is the greatest need of the Christian church at this present hour. What's your greatest need today? Let me tell you what your greatest need isn't, lunch. Your greatest need is not a little snack coming up. Your greatest need is not financial stability in the next little while. Those are needs, but that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not finally figuring out your future and what you're going to do. Your greatest need is not finally getting that degree. Your greatest need is not getting a spouse. Your greatest need is not finally accomplishing that project. Your greatest need is not getting the home of your dreams. Your greatest need and our greatest need in this hour is revival. We need for God's spirit to come upon us in a brand new way that we would be changed. We would be able to be marked by God's spirit and empowered for the things that he wants us to be about. We are desperate. You might not know this, but we are desperate. And if you feel lethargic, if you feel like this is is falling on deaf ears, then you need revival. This is the greatest need of our time. And if you're like me, I I am tired of my all too common apathy. I am so apathetic. I pursue the comfortable for me at almost all costs sometimes. And I'm so tired of that. I mourn it. I want to put that to death. That is not what I want to live for. I want for the glory of King Jesus to ooze out of me. I want for it to be said of me what they said of John Bunyan, that if you cut him, he would bleed Bibli and he would bleed the Bible, the very words of God, because the spirit was so active and moving in him that it was hard to separate the spirit of God from John Bunyan. So often we can become a lethargic church, can't we? I mean, if it wasn't comfortable sitting in the theater where we were meeting for so many years, it's even more comfortable sitting where you're at right now. It's easy to be lethargic. It's easy to let someone else do the work of the church. And it's easy not to give a rip about this city. It's easy to hear about the things that people are going through and be like, well, at least that's not happening to me. Or, oh, I'll pray for you. But you don't really care. You don't get awoken at night. I've been asking the Lord to wake me up at night. And guess what? Last night, my neighbors kept me up from about 1.30 to 2.30. Right? I was awake hearing them, praying for them. Lord, send revival to our place. Shake our whole entire place. Don't just let them be loud. Shake our entire condo building with your presence. Awake us from our apathy. 
Don't let us be a lethargic church. Don't let us nap when you want to work. And this, the frustrating thing is that what we need, we can't even get for ourselves. God, we need revival, but we can't get it. We can't go to the revival store and pick up a little canister and bring it home and sprinkle it in our neighborhood. It doesn't work like that. Only God can bring this. So I ask, as we get started this morning, I know 11 minutes into it, as we get started this morning, do you want this? Do you even want this? Do you want a city that doesn't look the same anymore? Do you want a church that doesn't look the same anymore? You haven't seen us in a while in person. I might be 6'1 at this point. You don't even know. I'm on camera. (laughs) Pray for me. Pray for me. I would love that. But do you want revival? Are you desperate for revival? Are you saying, God, if you don't bring revival to Montreal, I don't know what we're going to do. Because my heart is bursting with expectation. I don't know how much longer I can keep praying this way without screaming out loud so my whole neighborhood hears this. Well, probably you're asking, what does it look like if revival comes? Because it's not going to look like what, it, what happened in Northampton or what happened in the first century, or what happened in Wales in the early 1900s. But here's what's going to happen. And you can find that in 1 John 4, 1 to 11, which Trenton just read. And there are four things. I'll be as quick as possible, but that's not my aim this morning, to be super quick. Kids, as you're watching, I want for you to pray for revival. I asked my little girl, Sadie and Stella, this morning. They came out a little bit before they were supposed to, and I was finishing up praying through my sermon, and they said, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm praying. And I said, would you pray with me? They said, well, what do, you, what do you want me to pray? And I said, would you pray that you would love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart? And so each one of them said, Jesus, I want to love you with all my heart. Kids, would you be praying that throughout this sermon? Jesus, I want to love you with all my heart. Would you pray for your parents? Help my parents to love you with all of their heart. We, we need those prayers. Here's the first thing that happens when revival breaks out. Jesus is supreme. He is most important in our hearts. And our affections for him are raised. Feelings and affections are similar. But our affections are are raised. Listen to what John said in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it is already in the world. And so when revival takes hold, what the spirit of God does in a, in a fresh new way is that he helps you to say to Jesus, I only want you. I only want you. There's a song called Give Me Jesus. And part of the refrain in that song is you can have this whole world, but give me Jesus. In revival, your heart actually wants that. Your lips sometimes say that you want that, but your heart doesn't really want that. But in revival, your lips and your heart match up to say, I only want you. And what John is saying in this text is that it's not just your idea. In fact, it's not your idea of Jesus at all. But I want you, the real Jesus. I want you in 100 proof form how you've revealed yourself to be with all of the things that I try and explain away to myself and to others. I want that stuff as well because there are many false ideas of Jesus out there. It doesn't take long to figure out that many people have very different ideas and opinions of who Jesus is. And here's who Jesus isn't. He's not only a prophet. 
He's not just an example. He's not just a good man. He wasn't God with the spiritual body that looked like a human body. No, the real Jesus is this, that he was eternal God. No one ever made him. He had no beginning and will have no end. We believe that about Jesus. And we believe in the incarnation, and that's what John is saying here. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That God became man without losing his godness. We call that the incarnation. That we believe in the virgin birth. That we believe in miracles. Not that Jesus walked on the the icy part of the sea while his disciples went by in the unicy part of the sea. And that's how Jesus walked on water. No, no, no. We believe in all the miracles. And sometimes they confound my mind. Like, I don't understand how that happens. But we believe in that. We believe in the atonement that Jesus came to make a payment for you and I because you and I were rebels and are rebels against God. And Jesus came to make a payment for us in our place so that we could be brought into relationship with him. We celebrate the cross because of what was done there. And then we believe in the resurrection that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And we believe that Jesus is returning again. And what the enemy that is pointed out here, the Antichrist wants to do, is he wants to help us have this kind of build-a-bear version of Jesus. Well, I like these eyes, mommy. I want these eyes on Jesus. And I like this little heart, and I want to put that in him. And we leave the build-a-bear store with this little version of Jesus the way we want him to be. The Antichrist would love for us to do that. In fact, he so brilliantly strung in Jesus into every major world religion to make him a part, but not the whole. And what John is saying is that Jesus is everything. And in revival, our heart wakes up to that. And in revival, our heart says, Jesus, you are Lord, and I want to submit everything to you. Is there anything in your life that you haven't submitted today? Yes, I'm speaking to you. Yeah, you. Is there anything that you haven't submitted today? You cling to Jesus as Savior, but you have a very open hand with him as Lord. Because you're not sure if you can fully trust him. What about your money? Who gets final say over your money? Have you submitted your money to him? What about your sexuality? Have you submitted your sexuality to him? And even desires that you have that you're saying, Jesus, if you don't have that desire for me, I'm laying that down, no matter how much trouble that causes. What about your addiction? The thing that your heart longs for more than anything else. And that can be an addiction to anything. Are you willing to lay that thing down? Because Jesus wants to fill that with something that's far more beautiful. What about your vocation? Have you submitted your vocation? What if Jesus says, I want for you to change jobs? You're like, yeah, but that would be less money and I'd have to move into a new neighborhood and I wouldn't get these benefits. What if he wants you to give up your vocation? Have you submitted that? What about the perception that people have of you? Do you want for people to think a certain way of you? So you dress a certain way, you say certain things, you uh, live in a certain neighborhood, you do things in a certain manner because the perception of you is so important. Are you willing to lay that down? You're willing to lay that down. What about your time? What about your body? When revival comes, Jesus is Lord over all of those things. And I would say you're invited to give those things up now. Open your heart up to Jesus this morning. Submit to him because he wants to give himself fully to you. You see, revival, when it comes, it brings a a new interest, a new obsession even with Jesus. That you want to linger 
with him. You're upset that you have to leave for work because you've enjoyed your hours, that's right, hours of time with him in the morning. You can't wait for your alarm clock to go off so you can get out of bed and hear what Jesus has to say to you. It's like you're intoxicated with him. This is what happens in revival. And it's not about spiritual disciplines anymore. It's about getting to enjoy him. That those are all entry points under the highway of enjoyment of Jesus. I remember being a new Christian. I remember that uh, during, my, during my classes in um, my undergrad, I would, I would have my Bible and I would sneak reading my Bible in the middle of lectures. I would, I would rush away to the bathroom to pray. I loved being with Jesus. I wanted him more than I wanted anything else in this world. I interrupted my classes. I became a Christian uh, over winter break in between my, my third year in university. And I came back my third year and people, one of my professors would say something and I'd raise my hand and I'm like, oh, that's, that's wrong. She's like, well, what do you mean that's wrong? And I would share the gospel with my class. Not because I wanted to be a zealot, but because I wanted for them to know this real Jesus that intrudes into our lives and will not let us buy into these false things. That Jesus wants that for you. Not that you're interrupting your university class, but that you would sneak away to be with him. That you would want to find a place where you can get alone with him and you can hear from him and you can hear what he thinks of you. And that he, he loves you and he doesn't just love you, he likes you, he wants to spend time with you. Revival causes our hearts to explode in affection for him. So would you pray for this right now? Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and cause our affections for Jesus to rise. The second thing that happens in revival is that Satan's kingdom is attacked. And we see this in 1 John 4, 4 and 5. It says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. You see, during revival, it's like in Narnia, where the snow starts to melt. I know some of you like winter, and I just don't like winter. But it's in the Narnia world, that winter with no Christmas is a horrible thing. But when Aslan is on the move, snow starts to melt. And that's reality in revival. The snow starts to melt. The blinders are removed from people's eyes. They get to see things in a whole new way. The enemy's power of deception diminishes. It's like he's restrained. He's put on a leash. Whole cultures and cities and towns change in significant ways. Listen to what happened in Ephesus in the book of Acts when revival came. Acts chapter 19, verse 18 to 20. Acts 19, 18 to 20. It says, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. When when the darkness was, was shown to be what it was, people were willing to lose their, their entire livelihood of magic because they wanted Jesus more than that. The enemy's tactics were exposed. But we so often just want our city to, um, to have the right behaviors. We want to modify their behaviors. But that's not what revival is. 
It's not getting people to come and burn their books or live a certain type of sexuality or not do this and do that. That's not what revival does. Revival goes after our hearts to make them big for Jesus and then it exposes the work of the enemy, not the other way around. It's not live the right way and then you can become part of this revival. It's that your heart gets snatched up by God and you want him more than you want anything else. Because it's possible, and this is dangerous for us, it's possible for us to live good moral lives and be damned and be condemned. Mormons do it. They don't believe in the same Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. It's a completely different version. And yet they're some of the most nice people that you will ever meet. And yet it's not the right gospel. The gospel is needed to see the tactics of the enemy. And here's the thing. We're living in a very spiritual world. Not because spiritual is a cool, trendy term. We live in a world with many spirits. But here's what we need to understand and act in. We work in the power of the spirit more fully in revival, which can withstand the attacks of the enemy. You can hold your ground when the enemy comes to fight you. You're not told to run away and flee if a demon comes to your house. You're told to resist him. Stand firm. Speak against the lies and the deception that you're hearing. You don't have to move. They have to move. You've been brought into the new creation. They're never going to taste the new creation. They don't get a say over you because you have been pronounced more than conquerors, child of God, beloved, eternal sons and daughters of the living God. Like Demons don't get a say in that. So James and Peter say, resist them and they will flee. They have to. You don't have to give in anymore to these temptations. Why do you give in? Why do we give in? John 16, says, Jesus says, be courageous. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I have overcome this whole system that's anti-me. Jesus made this promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and his work. And in revival, we see the gates get pushed back and they diminish. You see people who are anti-God become followers of him. How? The spirit of God. Not some cool class that we ran. And yeah, yeah, I explained it really well and they got the incarnation finally and they understood that, no, no, no. It's, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I, I hated God yesterday. I didn't believe in him. Today I'm a follower of him. I don't know what took place. This is revival. Will you pray for this? Let me pray. Jesus, would you cause for Satan's kingdom to be seen by us and dismantled by you? The third thing that happens is that people come to love and respond to God's word more. People come to love and respond to God's word more. Verse 6 of uh, 1 John 4 says this. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. We listen. We want to hear from God. I want to tell you the story of the people of, of God who are living in exile in Babylon and then who come back to Jerusalem. And the story is found in, in the book of Nehemiah. But the people of God return to Jerusalem. They have to rebuild the walls and, and make sure that things are safe. 
for sure there's been spiritual lapse and dryness in the years that they were living in exile. And they come back and uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the leaders bring all the people together. And, uh, and, and what the people ask for on this day is this. You can turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 uh, if you're interested in following along, but I'll read it for us. Nehemiah chapter 8 uh, tells us that they asked for the, the law, the Old Test, parts of the Old Testament to be read for them. And so what they did was they unpacked the Bible for them for a half day. You guys are like, oh, 45-minute sermon is so long. It's like they couldn't get enough, half a day. And what happens at the end of that half day, what do they do? Finally, I can move on. Finally, I can go play my game. Finally, I can get on with my plans for the week. No, no, no. What they do is found in, in Nehemiah 8, verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, amen. Amen. And then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Worship erupts as the word of God is read all day long. They're like, are you done reading now? They're like, yes. Yeah. So like, yeah. Like there's this brilliant cry that gets cried out because we're a part of that. This is so exciting. Could you read some more? And in fact, you know, a few weeks later, they, they do just that. In Nehemiah 9 verse 3. It says that while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for the fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. They couldn't get enough. They couldn't get enough. And this is what happens in revival. It's like what I said before. You sneak off to hear from the Lord. You can't wait to have another prayer meeting. You can't wait to linger. These Zoom meetings after our gathering aren't just a mere exercise of like checking in with people. It's like, oh, I can't wait to hear what the Lord spoke to you. It's that we're lingering around the word of God. And when we hear the word and they impact us, we're sensitive to that. Listen to what happened to to this group in Nehemiah 8 verse 9. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this is a day, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. They heard what was being said and they were weeping over their, their, their disobedience and their brokenness and their rebellion. And, and they were being very sensitive to the word that God was speaking. And this is what happens in times of revival. God speaks to us in significant ways through his word. And we want to repent and we want to obey him. We take seriously his word. We long for his word. We want half day teachings. I've never gotten a request ever since starting Church 21 almost 10 years ago to do a half day sermon. But maybe it's coming. I'm going to be six foot one and preach half day sermons if there's revival. The second one is maybe true. First one will never be true. But will you pray for this? Let's pray now. Come Holy Spirit and give us an insatiable appetite for God's word. And give us the ability to know what we should be turning from and obeying. And let us turn to you. The last thing that John tells us that happens in, in revival is that there is an increase in love for God and for others. Listen to this. Dear friends, 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, 
If God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. There's an increase in love for God and for others. And as we're experiencing God's love for us, this one-way type of love, that he didn't love us when, when we were acceptable to him. He loved us when we were enemies. And as we experience that, we begin to love others in a similar way that we're not waiting for them to agree with our political stance. We're not waiting for them to agree with our response to COVID. We're not waiting for them to finally be the kind of neighbor that's worthy of our time, energy, and affection. No, no, no. We have been so loved and poured into that we're ready to to move toward them no matter what. This is what happens in revival, that our hate starts to get drowned in the love of God. That God takes our hate and he baptizes it in, our, in his love. And we come back out and we're like, I don't know what happened. But I have this new love for people. And this can be a personal revival thing too. I remember my, my friend, Arjuna, who lives in India. He said, I, I went to bed a Hindu and woke up a Christian. Now, that doesn't just happen that way. There's a longer story to it. But I woke up a Christian And how did I know? I looked out at the people in my village and I loved them and I cared about them in a way I had never, ever cared about them before. He had been processing through the gospel and somehow that night became a follower of Jesus. And it's not love for what we can get from them. That's easy to love people that way. It's not love so that they would love us and like us, but it's love because we're already loved and we begin to care care for people at a very deep and profound level that maybe we never cared for them before. We begin to care about people's physical, spiritual, social, mental, and eternal needs when maybe we could have given a rip about them yesterday. This is what revival does. It, It intrudes. It gets in there. You know, we have this little dog that somehow, you know, at night, uh, Jess and I would sit next to one another on the couch. We would talk. And now all of a sudden this little thing has like worked his way in the middle. So we just ordered a dog bed so he could be put on the floor. But it's like, that's what love of God does. It just shows up. and You're like, how did you get here? You're like, I don't know, but I'm so glad that you're here. And what do I do with this? And we turn toward others because we can't be... We can't hoard God's love. It's not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to be stored in our, in our wine cellars, in our basement. It's meant to be free because it's this ever-flowing fountain that never, ever, ever stops. It's meant to, be, to go through you like a conduit and brought to others. We talk about being blessed sometimes as Christians. And you're never blessed to just be blessed. You're always blessed to be a blessing. Everything that you get is somehow for other people as well. And what revival does is it redirects us toward others in a whole new way. Revival gives us compassion and empathy and power. Compassion gives us power to actually do something about this. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with these four things? Because you can't just say, fine, I'm gonna love Jesus more, I'm gonna make him supreme. Fine, I'm going to apply that. I'm going to look for Satan's tactics. All right, I'm going to love God's word more. You can't just do this. This is why, like, I've been wrestling all week with how to preach this thing. Because I can't just tell you to do it. I can't tell my heart to do it because we can't do this. But here's what we can do. In fact, this is the only thing we can do. And I took this from Colin Hansen's book um, called God-Sized Vision. 
Listen to this. He says, God holds the nations in his hands. He alone empowers our ministry. We must not depend on methods, cultural exegesis, strategies, and techniques as our end-all approach. We desperately need to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. Do you know what we need? We need the Holy Spirit to invade us. We need the Holy Spirit to take over our operating system. We need the Holy Spirit to impact our motivational factories, our affections. We need the Holy Spirit to hijack the controls to our life and say, I want to show you what a revived type of life looks like and then lead us into that. That's what we need. But what do we do to get that? The only thing that we can do And this is where we just feel so powerless. The only thing that we can do is pray, worship, fast, confess, and be weak as we wait. Ah, it's so frustrating as a preacher. Because I want to be able to say, do this and we'll be victorious and it'll be amazing. But here's the application. Pray and worship and fast and confess and continue being weak. And wait. But that's really the only place we can be. I don't know how else to lead our church at this time. There's no, there's no slick whiteboard strategy that we've come up with. This is it. But I think this will work. Let me, let me tell you the story of where I started my sermon with that little girl declaring those words and revival breaking out. Uh, it was Wales in October of 1904. And there was, this, there was this prayer meeting that took place, and it was a prayer meeting for youth. I don't know how they got them in there. Youth in a prayer meeting sounds like an oxymoron to me in many regards, but they were there nonetheless. And, uh, and this young man named Evan Roberts, a nobody, really. Like, he had nothing special about him whatsoever. Just Evan Roberts. He was at this prayer meeting, and as they were praying... He, he felt this strong sensation come over him to pray for something very specific. And so he loudly, in this prayer meeting, prayed, send the Holy Spirit. And that prayer meeting, which started, doesn't, we, don't, we aren't told what time it started, but it was earlier on in the evening. That prayer meeting went until 3.15 in the morning, only praying. And the, the accounts of it is that it moved from Evan to every person in that room. It was like the Spirit of God was touching each person in that room. And Evan Roberts on uh, October 31st, 1904, had a vision that underneath Wales, hell was opened up. And he saw, he saw people he knew, Welsh people, falling into hell. And so he prayed this prayer, which sometimes we pray these strange prayers. He said, Lord, would you close that for a year? I don't know why he prayed for a year, why he didn't pray for 10 years or 100 years, I don't know. But he said, would you you close that for a year and would you let 100,000 Welsh people become followers of Jesus this year? So that was in October of 1904. Well, let me fast track the story. June of 1905, there are recorded accounts of over 100,000 people confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord for the first time. Eight months. The Lord listened to this little nobody, Evan Roberts. And, and it's said of Evan that 
He had no, no training in this, nothing. But he would get up to preach, and it was like he would just burn in front of people with passion. And the Spirit of God was coming through him and going on to other people. And it was like, he could have said, you're all dumb. And somehow they would have become followers of Jesus that night. It was like he couldn't say the wrong thing. That people were, were listening with bated breath, waiting to hear from Evan what he was going to say. And this is what I say for Church 21. Send the Holy Spirit, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit. Let it start with us. Let it start with our confession that I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And would you bring revival to Montreal? Would you close up the gates of hell? Would you cause for people to see in visions and dreams and hear with new ears that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is beautiful and significant? And would you rescue people today? Would you allow for us to to confess anew that we love Jesus with all our hearts? And we want to be behind whatever it is that you're doing. Man, major shifts took place in, in Wales. And I can't get into all those things. But they saw significant change at that time. How did this happen? How did this revival happen? I want to end with this. Um, someone who um, recorded the account said this. Roberts called upon Christians to pray for Wales. He believed the church of Jesus Christ on its knees is invincible. Roberts exhorted audiences toward greater faith and spiritual power. He urged them, confess all your known sins and reconcile immediately with anyone that you've wronged. He spurred Christians to shed any lingering doubt that hindered their relationship with God. And he called on them to obey the Holy Spirit without flinching. And he urged all believers to make public profession of their faith in Christ. And I want want to invite you to do that this morning where you are where you're seated this morning, would you say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart? Go ahead and do it now. I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. You can do it here. I know there's people in this room. You might get picked up on the microphone. Who cares? I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. You see, what God is leading us to do is to pray. He's leading us to pray. We don't have a specific number to pray for, but this morning I was, I was just saying, Lord, would you rescue 500,000? here in Montreal. That would change our entire city. But Lord, do it. Do you know about the Quiet Revolution? Quiet Revolution, millions of people in Quebec left the church like that. What about a new revolution where millions of people come back into the church, but it's a, it's a new type of church. It's a church where the Holy Spirit is leading us toward Jesus. It's not about power. It's not about putting us in political places. It's not about having authority over certain things. It's about being followers of Jesus and living our normal everyday lives with gospel intentionality. What does our city look like with no more racism and sexism? What does our our city look like with unity? What does our city look like with no more homelessness and no homeless being fined for being homeless? What does our city look like when it starts to look more like the new creation in the kingdom of God? Would you pray confidently, expectantly toward that? Now, God is leading us to to linger with Jesus. He's leading us to love him and others. And revival begins with that proclamation that we just made. And so may Montreal never be the same because of this morning. May what we're doing in this like cheesy live stream. I hate live stream. I really do. I'm so tired of reading Lumix over and over and over. That's on the top of the camera. All I read, the whole entire sermon, right? Would the Lord use this silly thing that we're doing 
to bring revival. May your home right now be full of the Holy Spirit. May you move into an afternoon long session with the Holy Spirit talking with your kids about who Jesus is and what he has done. Let our confession of him begin the transformation. Send your Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray. God, I feel so inept and weak as a, as a preacher. I feel like I don't, I don't have words of change. I don't have uh, the ability to convince people. In fact, my profession feels, feels like a silly profession. Except when you, Spirit, light up your preachers. Except when you take our words and you make them your words. And rather, you work through us. So I pray that every word that you had to say this morning, Holy Spirit, would go deep into the hearts of those who heard. I pray that anything that came from me would just be forgotten and that you would lead us in this time of revival. Lord, bring revival. Send your Holy Spirit now. We need you. Amen.